Are you interested in leadership? Welcome to the Menzies Leadership Forum podcast. Tune in for insights and observations about leadership, the challenges and blind spots, attributes and values that you need to lead now and in the future. I'm Liz Gillies, Menzies Foundation CEO and your host today. Let's get started. Professor Brian David Johnson's um, joined the Menzies Foundation in a fascinating conversation about cybersecurity risk and the law in partnership with the University of Melbourne uh, and has delivered the 2019 Menzies Oration. Brian is currently the futurist in residence at Arizona State University's Centre for Science and the Imagination and works both as a professor in teaching and in supporting research around threat casting and future casting, but also works with a huge range of private clients, writes science fiction, contributes regularly on all sorts of media across the world and brings great insight and understanding in how we might think and develop uh, the platform for moving forward into uncertainty and complexity. And I'm delighted to have this opportunity today to look particularly at the sort of leadership implications of your work and the attributes and qualities that you're seeing in the people that you're working with that are required to move forward with confidence and um, success into some of the sorts of future challenges that you're seeing in the world. So look, just to start off with, it might be useful if you just explain a little bit about what a futurist is and what your work in the context of future casting and threat casting is to provide context for this conversation. Certainly. As a futurist, I look 10 years out into the future. I model both positive and negative futures. And then I turn around as an applied futurist and look backwards and say, what do organizations need to do today, tomorrow, five years from now to move towards that positive and move away from the negative? Oftentimes when I'm brought in, we might be looking at the future of products or services, but more often than not, I'm brought in by the board members, by the upper level of corporations or organizations to actually work directly with leadership to figure out, okay, how does leadership needs to change? How does leadership need to make different decisions? And what do they need to do to envision different futures? One of the fascinating things that you've done on your visit this week is sit on a panel discussing the art of war and science fiction. Perhaps just that I think gives people a great insight into the sort of worlds that you live in. Perhaps could you just give us a few seconds about what that was like and the sorts of challenges and questions that you were looking at in that context? Yeah, the work that I do in that area is I take the future casting and threat casting work that I do and I use something called science fiction prototyping, which is science fiction based on science fact to think about these possible and potential futures. And it gives people a really visceral way of being able to understand these possible futures and these possible threats. And more specifically, when I was at the um, Australian Defense College, we were really looking at science fiction in the future of war and how could we use science fiction as a tool to explore the future of war, the ethics how do we train the next generation of the soldier? Really looking at it as something that, number one, is engaging and really exciting, but also, number two, does real work, gives people a, a platform to start having conversations about around preparing for the future. As you look out into the future, Prime, what technologies are important and what do you see coming? Well, Especially looking 10 years out, we know that there's not just one technology. There's what I like to say is there's a constellation of technologies, things like artificial intelligence and machine learning, things like the Internet of Things, which is the ability to turn anything into a computer and have it sense and communicate. Also, we know that smart cities are going to be coming online over the next 10 years. We know that we're going to have more autonomy in land, sea, and air. We know that we're going to have distributed computational intelligence. That means we're going to have intelligence wherever we need it. 
we also are going to have more robots. We're seeing robots coming out of the factory floor and moving into the warehouses. We're also going to see more and more coming to education as well as healthcare. And all of these different technologies put together with things like data on a 5G backbone, all of these things together really start to present what, what we've been terming is a widening attack plane that you have all of these technologies and you have this multi-dimensional attack surface. So when you start thinking of threats, and there also could be opportunities, you're going to have this wide range of technologies that are coming together to provide really the potential for a much greater and deeper and broader impact to both humans in general, but also to governments, military, and private corporations. The other thing that's interesting in the context of that is sort of the rise of the corporation and the extent to which it's controlling technology's future agenda. The implications of that in terms of the work that you're seeing? Well, we know that right now that corporations have budgets that outsize the budgets of most countries. So you look at the of, look at Silicon Valley and how much they're spending on artificial intelligence, it dwarfs the budgets of most countries. So we know that even right now, so much of the research and development that's happening is happening in corporations. But as we look out to the future and you look at this widening attack plane, we see that all of this attack plane, all of these devices, all of these threats and possible disputes are all going to be running on a backbone of these corporations and of their technologies. And it really offers uh, some peril and some opportunities. The peril is to say, well, these are multinational companies that have different sorts of regulations and different ways of being governed. But then the flip side of that, the promise is that now these companies have the ability to step up and actually become an active participant in figuring out how do we make the future more secure. So all of this really centres on new ways of thinking about leadership and individual actors' roles uh, in the societies in which they operate, both at a country level but also at a sort of national, a transnational, global sort of level. As a futurist in the work that you're doing around the world, how do leaders, how do you see leaders preparing themselves for this sort of future? I love this question because it is, I have the most easy answer and the one that is most in complex and it's the same thing. So how can leaders prepare for the future? They need to prepare. This is one of the things that I think many leaders spend a lot of time thinking about is the problem right in front of them. Um, there are certainly innumerable problems. There are always organizational problems. There's always technical and regulatory and legal problems, but for a leader, it's incredibly important to have a vision, to be able to think about the thing that comes after the thing. What is on the other side of the next big thing, the next big technology, the next move that the leader might bring the organization to? You really need to think about one or two steps out. And oftentimes, leaders don't give themselves the permission and the platform to do that, to take the time to have a longer-term vision, because it then allows you to make more informed decisions today it allows you to react to outside externalities that are coming so that when they do happen, you're not caught unaware. And it allows you to make better moves for your organization if you give yourself the time and the platform and the permission to prepare. And the more complex, gnarly aspects of leadership that you're observing? So, so much of it is, is if you've got a vision for the future and you get all of the people in your organization on board with that vision. This is oftentimes what I'm brought in to do, where I'm brought in to not only work with leaders, but then also work with organizations so that people have this shared vision. 
that certainly every organization is complex. Every organization is different. I tell people that I would never go into one organization and treat it like the organization I was just working with a previous week in a different country. It doesn't work like that. That organizations have cultural history. Organizations have their own languages. So that is something that the organization and the leaders will be able to work out those gnarly, gnarly problems. What I can do as a futurist is I can come in, work with these organizations to have that shared vision, that clarity of thought. And that oftentimes will sweep away a lot of the problems. Very quickly, you'll start to understand in those gnarly problems, what are the near-term solutions you need to engage in. So with the breadth of work that you're doing around the world in the different contexts that you're working, what type of leadership attributes or qualities do you think that leaders need to build their leadership muscle on to lead in the sort of uncertainty that you're talking about? Well, number one, I always tell all leaders that they have to continue to be curious. To not only be lifelong learners, to constantly be curious about what's happening not only in their organization or in their market, in their industry, in their country, but just to have this general push of being curious, of always continuing to learn, always learning new things. But it goes beyond that. I push people to also be curious if they're confronted with something that they really disagree with. Ask why. Or if you hear a viewpoint or you even meet a person or an organization that you have almost an allergic reaction to, we all do, we're human beings, but to ask why, be curious, to say, oh, this person doesn't agree with me and I think they are completely wrong. Well, that's why, be curious about it, sort of push down into it. I think that's one of the things that oftentimes we forget. We forget to be able to continually push ourselves to be curious in that. And coupled with that is something that um, is very hard for leadership is to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Leaders are looked to to be leaders, to be people who are right, who have a vision, who know where things are going, so that when you're in the thick of a gnarly problem, you look to the leader and the leader says, we need to do this. And that's true, that is leadership's job. But as a part of that, leaders need to start being uncomfortable, need to be comfortable with being uncomfortable, that they may not know the answer. They may not know, but they can find the answer. As leaders, to have the courage to say, I don't know, but I'm going to find out. Or I don't know, but I know who to ask. And this, especially in this increasing complexity in this world where we're seeing different um, overlapping collaboration that's going to be needed between public and private, between government and military and private industry and academia and all these different areas, that leading with that curiosity and being comfortable with that uncomfortable feeling, I think will really empower leaders to make better decisions. So it's, uh, is it is accelerating this need to sit in the spaces that you're talking about faster and faster? Is there this sense that technology is developing at a rate that it is even, you know, compared to what leadership was like 10 years ago that you're that you're observing? I think that leadership hasn't kept up. Um, I actually, as again, as a futurist, it's my job to kind of sort of live my life 10 years in the future. My, my wife likes to say, I live my life 10 years in the future and then commute home on the weekends. So it's my job to live on the other side of that hype, to live on the other side of, of, that, um, of that curve, if you will. Uh, so I don't, don't actually believe things are, are speeding up. I actually believe that leadership hasn't kept up that there has been a lag, especially as we've moved into the 21st century. The, a lot of leaders that I work with, a lot of companies and organizations that I work with are still acting as if it were the 20th century. And they're not changing themselves to get ready for the 21st century. So I think that's what we're feeling is that, um, that lag. And there's a little bit of catch up that needs to happen. Uh, one of the challenges is just the sheer complexity of computational thinking and the sorts of um, the complexity in the technology itself. Uh, 
so how do people think about, I mean, leaders can't be know everything, be all things. And often um, in some ways there even seems to be the sort of leadership qualities that are around team building and visioning and taking people with you on the journey is not necessarily the way that you see nerdy tech people who are really focused on, you know, the intricacies of code and things like that. I mean, I don't know whether that's a misnomer, but how are people grappling with that challenge and feeling comfortable about the just detect the complexity of what's these sorts of the future looks like as they move into those spaces. Well, I can tell you as one of those nerdy tech peoples, I can tell you, no, the technology is not that complicated. No, but I totally understand that, that, that there are sort of the depths of the technology of the code of the network architectures. There's, there's sort of details that, especially for a leader, it's detritus. It's too much information, right? That you need to have just enough information to be able to move forward. And that's why when I work with leaders, it's number one, understanding do you have the right people? Do you have the right people in the room? Do you have the right diversity of people, the right diversity of thought? And when I say diversity, I mean everything from gender to domain and background, certainly to ethnicity, but also age. This is one of the things I think is that leadership oftentimes really shortchanges itself by not having the young upstart in the room. I often tell um, CEOs of companies that one of the best things they can do to prepare for the future is get a 13-year-old mentor. That getting that youth perspective is really, really important, especially if you're looking five or 10 years out, because that person is going to be that person who's coming into your organization. So I think that is really incredibly important and understanding what are the right questions to ask. And this is one of the things that I I say quite frequently and you hear quite frequently, but I have a very specific illustration of what that means, especially when it comes to technology. When we're talking about technology, whether it be artificial intelligence or smart cities or robots or drones, doesn't matter. With all of these technologies, we have to remember that they are simply tools. They're tools. And a tool by itself is irrelevant. It really doesn't matter. A hammer is just a hammer. A hammer is only important when you use it to affect somebody's life, when you use it to build a house. So I think a real clarifying way that um, leaders can go and, and move out, move the noise away is to say, okay, so what is the human impact here? You know, what are we doing? What is the human impact of all of this technology? What are we trying to get done? And to be very specific, the question for leaders to ask technologists, systems people is to say, what are we optimizing for? So with all of this technology and all this amazing thing that's coming, what are we optimizing for? How are we using all this technology and what is our ultimate end goal and how will it affect humans? That I think for leaders will bring it back and understand it's not just the technology, but it's the effect that the technology is going to have. So what's a blind spot that's causing people to find that a difficult leap to make in terms of the way that they're contemplating their leadership in these spaces? You know, what's the sort of the key blind spot that you suggest leaders think about in terms of developing, as I said, this muscle to walk into these uncertain futures? I love this question because I think there is a massive blind spot. Um, especially when I talk to leaders about their organizations, but more in general about the future. And oftentimes the biggest blind spot is that leaders feel like when it comes to the future, they don't have control. The very grammar that they use to ask me questions about the future is wrong. 
They say, what is the future of artificial intelligence going to be? Or what is the future of threats? Or, you know, where will we be in 10 years when it comes to this technology? And the way that they speak about it is as if the future is fixed, that the future is this place that we're all going towards and that we need to prepare for it. And especially as leaders, that's a huge blind spot because what essentially the leader is doing is giving up their power. They are saying the future is over there and we're moving this way and we're all going there. When the fact of the matter is that's not true at all. And by having that improper grammar and thinking about the future as being fixed, that leader is actually giving up power. They are letting somebody else design their future for them. So I think the biggest blind spot is that misunderstanding that the future is fixed and not understanding that leaders, specifically leaders, especially of organizations, have control to shape that future and that they need to be active participants in that future. We'll be right back after this short break. Are you a passionate school leader? Here at the Menzies Foundation, we know that individual school and widespread system improvement starts with leadership. The Australian education system is facing unprecedented challenges and requires the very best leaders. Our Menzies School Leader Fellowship is a two-year, unique program open to all Australian school leaders that leverages professional development, peer-to-peer support and incubates those insights to drive school and system-level change. Welcome back. I'm interested in your leadership journey, Brian, and how you've built your competencies and capabilities to, you know, be a leader in this space. Can you tell me a little bit about how you see yourself as a leader? So that's really changed. So myself as a leader um, has evolved throughout my career. As I mentioned, I've been doing this for about 25 years. Um, and I come out of Silicon Valley. I come out of right, being the chief futurist for a large high-tech manufacturing company. Um, in that part, it was being able to work with leadership, to work with global companies to help move things forward, to have this sort of large vision. A lot of the work that I did was around smart TVs and sort of the ability just to watch movies on your television, things like that. But now... Um, as I've moved on and I've been doing more work at the threat casting lab and more work in my private practice, um, I really see myself as being able to enable that next generation. Part of this is my um, sort of position as a professor um, and working at a university. I've really begun to see that as you start to look at the next generation of worker, that it's so important to enable them, to empower them. Now, this could be that really smart 10-year-old that in 10 years is going to be 20 and entering the workforce or becoming a future soldier. But it's also that 20-year-old today who's going to be taking that mid-level job when they turn 30. It's also that 30-year-old who's going to be, you know, moving on. So it's how do we go and address every different generation? How do we look at all the people in an organization and saying, what are we doing to meaningfully give them not only the vision, but also the permission and the tools to get the most out of them and the most out of their organization in the future. And it's something that I think we try to do, but oftentimes I see people fall down and actually don't do that. And so, so much of what I try to do and, and use the platform of my private practice in the university is to really dig in and say, not only let's enable them, but let's also measure it. And this is one of the things I think that doesn't happen with leadership is you're not actually measuring that success. So when you think about your leadership journey from the point from starting at Intel, from working you know, in incredibly interesting, complex, global challenges to being a professor. How do you see your own leadership journey? Tell us a little bit about what you, what other things that I suppose are the pillars or the ballasts of what make you a leader. Oh yeah. 
there's a, there was a moment um, for me that was uh, life-changing, actually, um, especially around leadership and around sort of having that vision. Um, and it occurred um, right when I was um, beginning to exit the Intel Corporation and move into where I am today. So for the longest time, what I was doing in high tech and what I was doing with these global companies is I wanted to fundamentally change how people imagined, designed, and built technologies. That I wanted technology and services to be built for humans. Oftentimes when people have had commentary about me, they say, yes, he's a technological futurist, but he's a technological futurist that cares more about people than about technology, which is true. And we always have to keep people at the center of that technology. And that's, this is why I started working at the Intel Corporation. If I could get this large international company to fundamentally reimagine how it designs, develops, and builds technology that could have impacted scale, that happened. And I was very lucky being at the Intel Corporation. One of my mentors was a gentleman by the name of Andy Bryant, um, who was the, um, the sort of leader. He was the chairman of the board of Intel. Um, and so... I was talking to him about moving on. And I had said, this was why I had come to the corporation. This was the thing that drove me as a leader. And I just really wanted to make this fundamental change. And he kind of smiled at me. He's a very down to earth, great man. And he kind of smiled at me and said, BDJ, well, you did that. Obviously you set the bar too low. What's next? And it really floored me uh, because I had seen it. I had seen it happen. I had seen the company transform. I had seen an entire industry transform. And I went away and thought about it. And I realized that for me and my leadership journey, that the next step was instead of working with these corporations and these companies and these groups, that ultimately what I wanted to do was to empower every single human being to fundamentally change how they imagined, designed, and built their future. To give every person that I met Every person from whether it be in a, in a boardroom or a recording studio or in the back of a taxi cab or you know, sitting at a pub, that those conversations to talk with people and say, to give them agency and give them power, because often people don't have that. And so this has been my fundamental driver for me recently as a leader as well, is to be able to go to people and have them realize that they have that, they have that power, they have that ability, and to then start giving them the tools and the connections to do it. So what are your strengths as a leader? Humor. <laughs> I think we don't use humor enough, and especially being a person who does work in threat casting, who spends so much time. You know, that's the thing that people forget about humans is that we're funny. And I think that leadership forgets this as well. Actually, now I can say being on Australia, uh, Australian leaders are very funny. Um, we have a very good sense of humor. But we often forget that. We often forget that human beings, and even if things are going really, really bad, somebody's going to crack a joke. And that's not bad. That's actually a way for humans to disarm each other and to have better conversations to kind of clear away the tension. So I, I actually use humor, and you've seen this already, I use humor quite a lot. Um, and then the other part is I have this um, deep, deep commitment to diversity and the diversity of thought, the diversity of who is in the room. This is one of the things that in our lab is incredibly important because for me, when you're thinking about the future and sort of helping to sort of design that future, you need to have the right people in the room, quite literally. And it's something that I've been able to take my philosophy and my leadership philosophy and play out literally in a spreadsheet to be able to sit down and say, okay, we are going to be thinking about the future of information warfare or the future of nuclear proliferation or the future of anything, any problem. And so we say, okay, who are the people we're modeling for? Great. Okay, let's create a seat matrix to say, who needs to be in the room? So we begin to say, okay, well, if we're modeling for the world, that means it's pretty much 50-50, male, female. 
We know it's these different domains, whether it be engineering or law or marketing. We also know we want different sort of ethnicities and background. Great. Different points of view. Great. We also want different ages. Well, we actually create seats. We say, okay, so if we can't find that person, that female person of color who's an engineer, that seat remains empty. And it allows us to say, because if we want to create more robust models, we need to have a larger diversity of thought and a larger diversity of perspective. And this is something that, yes, is the right thing to do, but we've learned from economics. I mean, there's been whole Nobel, Nobel Prizes given on this idea. And we know from biology that an ecosystem that has more diverse inputs is far more resilient. So I think for myself and in my leadership qualities is to think about how are we making sure that we have the right people in the room and also being comfortable with being uncomfortable knowing we're never going to get everybody and that we always have to be vigilant looking for the outlier. This is what I do with my teams. What I do when I work with people is say, who are we not serving? Who is not in the room? Even when we've tried very specifically to get all the right people in the room to hold ourselves accountable to say, we're not perfect. And it's always say, who are we not serving and who's not in the room and to constantly push. And for me, as a leader, stepping back once you've done that, it is amazing what comes out. Once you have that diversity of thought and everybody is curious and everybody is comfortable with being uncomfortable and you watch these teams really blossom and the ideas that come out, that to me is just incredibly powerful. So, you know, it's very interesting in thinking about leadership and what leadership is. Leadership's not a destination, it's a journey. And one of, I think, one of the things that we're seeing is a really key quality of leaders is this strength of self-reflection and of um, interrogating the good and the not so good. So can you talk about leadership challenge that you faced and what it and how you approached it and what it taught you about how it contributed to you being the leader that you are today. It goes back to this, the diversity conversation that we had um, and being comfortable with being uncomfortable where very early on we would begin to pull together people to do threat casting and modeling, to bring the right people in the room. And that, again, whether it be in the boardroom or in the meeting room, it doesn't matter. But for me, in my journey, it was about getting the right people in the room to do futures modeling. And it was very important futures modeling because it's about, you know, global security and global economic security and resource security. So it was, had a big deal. And we did our best and we started to get the right people in the room. And we had this and pulling together any event, as anybody knows, is very tough and getting, you know, 70 people in a room and getting them all in the place and getting them fed and making them secure and all that is, is very difficult. Um, and we took a step back and um when we were beginning, we always encouraged people to disagree, to stand up and ask questions. And very early in that, there was a young woman who stood up and said, there aren't enough women in the room. Look around, there aren't enough women in the room. And actually called us out to say, this is unacceptable. And in the back of my mind, I had all the reasons of why that's hard, um, why we had tried. And to realize as a leader, it wasn't good enough that even just trying wasn't good enough, that I had set the bar at trying um, and that I had failed. And to understand that that failure was something that I needed to recognize um, and to be quite honest, that I needed to stand up and recognize, hold myself accountable and make myself very vulnerable in front of a room of 70 strangers to say, I failed. And I recognize that we need to do this, but then also to ask for help, to say, the problem is not is that there weren't enough really smart, qualified female that should females that should be in the room. They were there, but 
we didn't have the mechanisms to get them in the room. And to be quite honest, because of culture, because of the way that many organizations are set up, there just aren't enough women. There aren't enough women in power. It's not their fault. They're busy. They've got lots of other things that they're being asked to do. So for me, it was in that self-reflection and being extremely uncomfortable knowing that I have a stated passion around this, but I had still failed. And, but to accept that failure, to publicly talk about it, but then also to publicly ask for help. And to know that this was a journey, that I wasn't going to get it right all the time and that it was something that I was committed to, but there was still more I could do. So as you continue on your journey and you look to the sorts of leadership roles that you want to play in the future, tell me the thing you're most going to focus on, the muscle you most want to exercise. As I move into the future, I know that I'm going to be doing more and more work at the university. I will be transitioning out of being in my private sector, doing private futures and doing work with corporations, which is very interesting. But I think there's so much to be done with the general public. And so much of what I want to do, it goes back to that really core leadership value that drives me is how do I fundamentally change how average people imagine, design and build their future? And that's a tricky thing because you're talking about a whole of world problem. And I'm not demented. I don't think that we can actually save the whole world. But it's a, it's a problem to me that is so large and so international. I, I go back to uh, one of my people that I look to all the time who I read to is uh, the scientist Carl Sagan. And what Carl Sagan used to say all the time was that human beings, when you look at the fullness and the story of the universe, that we are not the central actors in this drama. Even our, where our solar system sits isn't even at the center of the universe. We're in a weird, strange suburb out to the side. Human beings have this great ability to, to get very centered on ourselves. Um, and to me, why that is so important is it also pushes me to realize that we're in this weird suburb of the universe, and it's just us. It's all of us on this one rock, on this one planet. Um, and that's one of the things to me to realize that we are all that we have, that humans, all we really have on this little blue rock is each other. And that's why one of the um, foundational ideas at my school, at the School for the Future of Innovation and Society at ASU is the future involves everybody. And this is a concept that is quite simple and I think most people would understand, but incredibly hard in its execution. So how do we make sure that the future does involve everybody? In finishing, uh, Brian, one of the most fascinating things about you is that in addition to academic work and consulting and, you know, your work across the globe, you're also a science fiction writer and a filmmaker. And I'm really fascinated by this nexus between leadership, the rigour of what you do and this notion of science fiction and creative way of imagining what the future looks like. Could you just explain a little bit about how you play out those roles and how that approach manifests in your leadership? So I am a science fiction author because I'm a nerd and I'm a geek and I love all things science and all things science fiction. And as a futurist, I've used science fiction and this notion of science fiction prototyping for many, many years um, as a way to play out these possible futures. So that is sort of in my uh, role as a futurist and in my role as a, as a nerd and a geek. I just love doing it and I've always done it. But in my role as a leader, you start to make decisions around what you write and why you write it and how you write it. Um, so I begin to see science fiction as a tool. It certainly needs to be very exciting and, and things like that, but I see it as a tool. And I'll give you an example. The, the last book that I wrote uh, was a young adult novel. It was called Wizards and Robots. 
I like, I like to joke with people, can you guess what it's about? So it's, it's about wizards and robots. And it's, you know, it's this great young adult novel about this like century spanning battle between wizards and robots. And it all and all the, the robots are based on my robots, the robots that I build. And all of the magic of the wizards is all based on quantum physics. I actually worked with my favorite uh, theoretical physicist, Dr. Paul Davies, who's also based at ASU. He's amazing. Um, and so we made the spells around quantum mechanics and quantum entanglement and kind of built all this in. And it was the, the machinery that lived underneath the story that we didn't talk about, but I wanted to make sure that it was science fiction based in science fact. But I ended up, I co-wrote the, the book with Will I Am. And so Will and I met at work and we were talking about this and we were talking about who should our main character be. So again, we've got century spanning wizards and robots, the battle for the future of the human race and the earth. And who should that protagonist be? And unanimously, between the two of us, we realized it needed to be a young female engineer. And the reason for that was we wanted to give the next generation a vision of themselves so that they saw themselves as heroes. They were the ones who were going to save the world. And very purposely went through. We, we even named her Ada Luring after Ada Lovelace, the, the first engineer and a, an amazing female scientist. But we did that specifically. We made that because we knew we wanted to have a story and that the story was going to go out. And one of the most profound moments in that idea that as a leader, you can make these decisions around what you write. I've written more than 10 books. I don't have to write more books. But, and I could pick anything I wanted to, especially when you're writing fiction, but to say, I want to write this book with this person around this character. And here's why we want to do it, because it's a, it's a way to give these young minds and specifically these young female minds so they can see themselves as heroes. And so we went and we did, the book was released. We went and did the um, uh, book tour. And at one point we were in the um, studio at the BBC in London and this group of young ladies comes bounding towards Will and myself and they've got our books in the hand. And this one young lady runs up to me and goes, I read your book and now I want to be a quantum physicist. And I looked back at her and said, I want to cry. Because that is, ex I just got chills. That is exactly why we did this, is to be able to give this vision so that they could see themselves as heroes. Because in the book, Ada, the um, young engineer, her mom is a preeminent roboticist. And it's not a thing. And we had so many young ladies come to us and say that, that, wow, this was great. And so for me, it's, that is reflective of, okay, how do I enable that next generation as a leader and step back? actually let those young minds become the next leaders and actually have myself just step back and enable them. So just in finishing, Brian, it's been a fascinating conversation and, you know, it's just so important, I think, to share people's stories about leadership, how they think about leadership, how they're moving in the world. I'm going to put you on the spot. I want three words that describe the most important qualities leaders need to have to take us to a better future. Humor, imagination, and courage. Thanks so much, Brian. It was a pleasure.